The following message was preached at Redeemer Community Church. For more information about Redeemer, visit us online at www.redeemernc.org. Today's scripture reading comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 9 through 14. In addition to the teacher being a wise man, he constantly taught the people knowledge, he weighed, explored, and arranged many proverbs. The teacher sought to find delightful sayings and write words of truth accurately. The sayings of the wise are like cattle prods, and those from masters of collections are like firmly embedded nails. The sayings are given by one shepherd. But beyond these, my son, be warned. There is no end to the making of many books, and much study wearies the body. When all has been heard, the conclusion of the matter is this. Fear God and keep his commands, because this is for all humanity. For God will bring every act to judgment, including everything hidden, whether good or evil. This is the word of the Lord. Speed of God. You may be seated. Thanks, Suzanne. Thanks, Edison. So I don't know the last time you visited a library or bookstore, but if you did, you probably saw a, a section entitled Self-Help, filled with books about really various things. So there's books in there about becoming more physically fit or overcoming an addiction, books on uh, personal finance, time management, increased productivity, lots of things like that. But the section's devoted to personal transformation. Well, that industry is an $11 billion a year industry. There are more than 22,000 life coaches that combined to make $3 billion a year. The Center for Disease Control reports that one in five adults has received treatment for mental health, and it's one in three ages 18 to 25. All this shows us that as self-sufficient as we pretend to be, there's a collective cry for help all around us. Even those who seem to be doing well are in need of help. At the height of the Beatles' fame, their, song, their lead singer, songwriter John Lennon, wrote a song called Help. This is how one writer described the circumstance behind that song. He said the song was... As, may, as many people have come to realize, John Lennon, listen to this phrase, drenched in fame, fortune, and without the foggiest idea of how to keep on living his life, crying out for help. And, and it's not very subtle. The lyrics of the song are simply that. They're a cry for help. This is how the song starts. I need somebody. Help. Not just anybody. Help. You know I need someone. Help. And this is how the song ends. Help me if you can. I'm feeling down and I do appreciate you being round. Help me get my feet back on the ground. Won't you please, please help me. Help me. And the final phrase is a voice screaming, help me. You know, the Beatles song, Help, shares some similarities with the book of Ecclesiastes. Because the book of Ecclesiastes, at its core, is a desperate cry for help. It's a catalog of all of the things that we think will help us, and we find out they don't. Like when we think, well, if I just had some more money, if I had some more money and the resources and the power that come with it, then everything would be great. And we've been told, yeah, your money can disappear, but either way, you're still going to die. Well, maybe, maybe if, I, if I was a little more successful or, or had a little more authority or influence, but it says, well, people with authority and influence lose that authority, their targets, and in the end, they end up dying too. 
Well, maybe if, I, maybe if I had success or pleasure, maybe if I had more wisdom or knowledge, maybe if I had this or that, all the things we think, this is what I need, when we get them, we realize they don't actually meet the need. All of them are like empty peanut butter jars, and we're like a little kid running around trying to catch the wind. So we've learned a lot of lessons as we study this book the past three months, but I want to make sure that we understand the single most important lesson from Ecclesiastes. So if you've written nothing down for three months, this is what I want you to write down, okay? Ecclesiastes shows us that the help we need comes through Jesus. Ecclesiastes shows us that the help we need comes through Jesus. So friend, wherever else you've been searching for help will come up empty. You won't find it. You've sat here week after week, and, and you've seen in the text your need, but you're pretending that there's some other solution that's going to solve it. Your soul is crying out, help, I need somebody. But you won't come to the one person who's able to help you. Now maybe you're thinking, how can Ecclesiastes be telling us we need Jesus when it doesn't mention his name? In fact, it doesn't even mention the title Messiah or use the words crucifixion or resurrection. How can this be really about Jesus? Well, let me answer that by comparing two of my favorite series of books. Okay, the Chronicles of Narnia and the Lord of the Rings. So the Chronicles of Narnia was written by C.S. Lewis. Lord of the Rings was written by J.R.R. Tolkien. They were co-workers and they were friends. And they wrote these two fantasy series that share some similarities but are, are significantly different. So when C.S. Lewis wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, he wrote it as an allegory for the Christian life. So if you read the Chronicles of Narnia, maybe you've read them with your kids, maybe you read them in school or something, it's pretty clear who Jesus is in the story. It's Aslan, this great lion, right? So the, the series opens with the lion singing a song, and from his words, the, the worlds are made. In the, in the most famous book, the most significant book, the lion sacrifices his own life in the place of a treacherous son of Adam. He rises from the dead, and he conquers evil. And then in the final book in the series, I'm not giving it away. It's not suspenseful. In the final book of the series, the, the great lion invites his people to come and to live with him forever and ever in a new land. And so when you read the Chronicles of Narnia, it's sort of like reading the Gospels in the sense of you're like, oh, there's Jesus. He's pretty obvious. Now, when Tolkien wrote, Tolkien did not write an allegory. In fact, he was very anti-allegory. I'm not sure what they did that friendship, um, but he was anti-allegory. But Jesus is still there. But he's there not in one character. It's pretty obvious. He's there in lots of of smaller, more subtle ways. We see parts of him in different characters. So it focuses on a little hobbit. He's unimportant, he's insignificant, yet he, he carries the weight of evil on him and he descends down into the earth where he, where he kills evil to win the victory. There's a great king. That could look like Jesus, right? He is healing his hands, but he starts as sort of a nobody up north before he eventually comes to a restored throne. And then you have a wizard. And the wizard dies, and he's fighting evil, and he rises from the dead and, and has more power than he had before. And so in this series of books, Jesus is there, but I would say he's there like the book of Ecclesiastes. He's there. He's just there more subtly. He's not quite as obvious as reading in the Gospels. See, this is how Ecclesiastes ultimately points us to Jesus. It raises all of these questions that only Jesus can answer. We're told that the Old Testament was given to us, 2 Timothy tells us, so that it would lead us to wisdom for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, it's showing us this. You need to be saved. You need to be saved from your sin and from judgment and from destruction and from death. 
And the only way you'll do it is through faith in Jesus Christ. That's why it was written. And so the book of Ecclesiastes, what it's doing is it's playing this role of interrogator. It's asking our souls all of these questions so that at the end of the day we'll be like, wow, I desperately need something, some sort of salvation, and the only one who's able to give it, the only one who's able to provide it is Jesus. So it shows us we're in desperate need of help. It's a help only Jesus can provide. So in this final section, we see four ways we need help, and each of these ways points us to Jesus. Here's the first way. We need a wise teacher. We need a wise teacher. Now, our guide throughout the book of Ecclesiastes was this man called the teacher. He's famous for his wisdom. He's a researcher of the human condition. He's a deeply skilled communicator. And we get this fuller description of him in these final verses. Look at verse 9. In addition to the teacher being a wise man, he constantly taught the people knowledge. He weighed, explored, and arranged many proverbs. The teacher sought to find delightful sayings and write words of truth accurately. So he's not the source of wisdom. He doesn't create wisdom, but he's an explorer on the subject of wisdom. So his life work has been to uncover and catalog wise sayings. And so what he does is, is he, as he searches for wisdom and he finds it, he highlights the most helpful truths, the most profound truths, and then he teaches these truths to the people in a way that they can understand. So like Solomon before him, he's become famous for his wisdom. Now what stands out, we're told, about these wise sayings is that they are both true and beautiful. So the, the sayings he's collected that he's put together are sayings that are true and beautiful. I think we've seen this combination throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. Many of you, as we've been talking, have shared that this book resonates with you because it speaks so honestly about what it's like to be human. Like we read through Ecclesiastes and there's a level of uncomfortable honesty. In fact, sometimes you're like, is the Bible allowed to say this? Like it, it feels sometimes dark, sometimes depressing, sometimes uncertain and questioned and doubting. Like there's a, a level of truth that comes out. Because in spite of what the Lego movie taught us, everything is not awesome, right? Life is filled with unforeseen troubles. It's filled with unexpected frustrations. Like the sun will come up tomorrow, right? But it might be covered by rain clouds. Darkness and despair are part of the landscape east of Eden. So we see these, this true assessment of the human condition. It's true. But it's also had these moments of beauty, I think of that famous poem in chapter 3, the one that's read out of context at weddings, right? But it's this beautiful poem about seasons and the changing seasons. Or here in chapter 12, it talks about a silver cord and a golden bowl. And what it's showing us is that in spite of how hard and unpredictable life is, in spite of the fact it's out of our control, there's still beauty in our world. There's beauty in a good meal with close friends, there's beauty in two young people who stand up at the altar and they pledge their life to one another and then they hold hands for the next five decades. There's beauty in a hard day's work followed by a good night's sleep. That the frustrating part of life in this world is there's this disconnect between such profound beauty and such deep pain. And we've seen this in the wisdom of the teacher, but for all of his wisdom, he admits it's insufficient. 29 times he uses the phrase, under the sun. And he's using this phrase to tell us, listen, my perspective is limited. What he's shared with us is the wisdom he's collected after a lifetime of philosophical archaeology. He's, he's scoured every cave and cavern. He's turned over sticks and stones, all trying to search for wisdom. 
but he's saying, I've never seen what exists beyond planet Earth. So my, the wisdom I found, the wisdom I've discovered is true and it's beautiful, but I'm warning you, it's limited. And so what we need, and that's what's being reminded of us at the end of this book, is we need a teacher with unlimited wisdom. One that doesn't need to go on a quest to discover wisdom, one wisdom flows out of, that wisdom is birthed by, that wisdom comes from, that's what we need. So where can this kind of wise teacher be found? Well, think back to how the book opened. It opened by introducing us to the teacher with this phrase, that he's the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Okay, as people who read our Bibles, this phrase is significant, right? We understand the promises God made to Abraham and to Moses and to David that one day that there would be a king in Jerusalem, a son of David, who would restore everything that was lost in the garden. He's called the Messiah. So we read verse 1 of chapter 1, and we're like, oh, maybe this is the Messiah. Maybe this is the one who's so wise, who can lead us back to what we lost. But we find out pretty quickly it's not. That this, this particular son of David, this particular king in Jerusalem, he's not the Messiah. We need someone else, some, someone whose wisdom far exceeds this king. We need someone whose wisdom is not bound by time or space. We don't need a scientist who experiments with wisdom. We need the inventor of wisdom himself. See, one of the marks of the coming Messiah, we're told in Isaiah, is that he would be characterized by this unlimited wisdom. We're told the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, and he will have wisdom and understanding in such measure, it says this, that his wisdom will not be limited by what his eyes can see or what his ears can hear. In other words, they're saying that unlike this son of David, the the final ultimate son of David, the ultimate king, the one we're waiting for, he has no limits on his wisdom. He never grows frustrated by lack of understanding. We've heard the frustration in the teacher, right? As he's like, this isn't making sense. My wisdom isn't helping me discern why this is happening and not that. I'm frustrated. Saying this teacher never grows frustrated. Not the future one. He understands it all. There's no limits to his wisdom. He's never gone into a situation and said like, well, I don't know what to do. Jesus stood before the religious leader of his day and he said, the queen of the south, he's talking about a queen, a historical queen from Sheba, says, well, rise up in the judgment with generation condemn it. Here he says, because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And look, Something greater than Solomon is here. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's like, I'm the teacher. I'm the one who can unveil beauty and truth that you can never discover apart from me. Jesus is the son of David, the king of Jerusalem, and he's the only one who can make sense out of the chaos in our world and in the chaos in our lives. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I see an anthill, I sympathize with the ants. Like, I feel like those ants. Like there they are, they're just in this little piece of their world and they're just doing the same things over and over, right? Day after day, somewhat mundane, it seems, somewhat repetitive. And the only thing that might change it is if someone they can't see stomps on their hill. Like that's the only thing that's changing. Maybe once in a while they find a piece of food they get really excited about. But apart from that, like this is what their life is. Like, sometimes that's how life feels, right? We're, we're doing the same things over and over. Do they matter? Are they significant? Do they have any consequence? And we're just sort of waiting for the boot to fall. 
and, and destroy everything we built. You ever wish that you understood life better? I mean, that you understood why we're here, what we're doing, what you're supposed to do, why it matters. The Apostle Paul prayed this on behalf of some Christians in Colossians. He said this, I want their hearts to be encouraged and joined together in love so that they may have, listen, all the riches of complete understanding and have the knowledge of God's mystery, Christ. So this is what he's praying and encouraging, working for in the churches he ministered. I want you, Christians, to have complete understanding. And how does that happen? Christ, in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So here you have the teacher in Ecclesiastes who's searching for wisdom that will make his life meaningful. And here's what we find. The only way to make your life meaningful is to go to Jesus. Like the more you love Jesus, the more you know Jesus, the more you walk with Jesus, the more time you spend with Jesus, this is what makes life make sense. This is how you get complete understanding. All wisdom is hidden in him. And so brothers and sisters, let me tell you, the pursuit of wisdom fails unless it leads you to Jesus. When he says all the treasures of wisdom are hidden in him, it means the only way to make sense of your life is to find your life in Jesus. And so Ecclesiastes, all of it is leading us to this point where we say, I need a, I need a wise teacher because life is complex and it's mysterious and I don't think I'm navigating it very well. And God says, I'll give you something better. I'll unite you with wisdom himself. You can learn from him. So we need a wise teacher. Here's the second thing we need. We need a good shepherd. A number of years ago, we got one of those invisible fences to help our dog stay in the yard. So I don't know if you've used one of those, but the, the way you, tr you have to train the dog to use it. And so you go around and you put these white flags all around the border of your yard. And then you put the collar on, on a, the lowest setting, doesn't hurt him. Okay, no emails about dog cruelty. It just like buzzes a little bit, just enough to know. So then what you do is you put them on a leash and you get the collar on, you walk them close. And the closer you get to the white flags, it starts beeping. And then you actually lead them to where it just gives them a little bit of buzz to be like, oh, I'm not supposed to go there. And the way they say, you're supposed to do this like three times the first day. And you're supposed to do this over the course of like five or six or seven days. I don't know if my dog is just wimpy. He said, wimpy or really smart. We did it once. And he was like, never again. Like, <laughs> He's like a six foot, we throw a ball, it goes like within six feet of the line. He sits there, just waits for us to go get it. So like there's this immediate compliance because of how uncomfortable this sensation was. Listen, you and I are a lot like dogs or cattle or sheep. We're a lot like those animals that aren't terribly smart and need a lot of guidance for their own protection. Like if we're on our own, left to our own decision-making, we, we just do stupid, foolish things that harm ourselves and others. Somebody sent me a video this week. You probably have seen it. It, it opens with a sheep that is, its head is stuck in a ditch, a very narrow ditch. Its head is stuck in it. And there's a guy, I assume a shepherd, maybe a random guy, I'm not sure. And he's pulling on the sheep's leg and he finally pulls the sheep, like sort of sucks him out of this ditch and he sets him down. And literally the sheep takes two steps, jumps up there and head first dives back in the ditch and is stuck there. Like that's, that's us. 
How many times have you said, why did I do that? Why, why did I do that again? That was so stupid. We, we make the same choices over and over, same decisions over and over. We get frustrated by it. Listen, we say, I'm going to learn from my mistakes. We don't learn from our mistakes. We just keep making them. How many times have you said, like, yeah, I just, if I could just change this one thing? You've been trying to change that one thing for 20 years. Like, we're our own worst enemy. We're told the words of Ecclesiastes are designed to poke us and prod us in the right direction. Have you felt that at all over the past three months? Like, these are designed to raise questions that you don't want to ask. They're designed to make you feel uncomfortable so that you'll forsake foolish choices and start pursuing what actually brings you joy and contentment. We don't, we, need, we don't need to search for some mystical information that's out there somewhere. Instead, we simply, this is our job, like, don't walk into the fence. Don't jump into the ditch. Just listen to the shepherd as he guides you with his word. Verse 11 says this, the sayings of the wise are like cattle prods. And those from masters of collections are like firmly embedded nails. The sayings are given by one shepherd. But beyond these, my son, be warned. There's no end to the making of many books, and much study wearies the body. It's telling us this, though the, the teacher's the one who penned these words, there's someone else who stands behind them, someone called the one shepherd. The one shepherd gave us these words to guide us. Now, who is this one shepherd? So if you have your Bible, turn to Ezekiel 34. It's an important passage in Scripture. I want you to take a look at it because it answers this question. Who is the one shepherd? So the chapter begins by God telling Ezekiel the prophet, I want you to prophesy against the leaders in Israel. The people who are religious leaders, political leaders, civil leaders, they, they are not doing what I intend for them to do. So listen to what he says, Ezekiel 34, verse 2. Woe to the shepherds of Israel who've been feeding themselves. Shouldn't the shepherds feed their flock? You eat the fat, wear the wool, and butcher the fatted animals, but you do not tend the flock. You have not strengthened the weak, healed the sick, bandaged the injured, brought back the strays, or sought the lost. Instead, you have ruled them with violence and cruelty. So God's saying here, listen, I appointed leaders over my people to care for them, but instead, you're all eating lamb chops and wearing cashmere sweaters. So what's God going to do about the situation? Drop down to verse 22. God says, I will save my flock. They will no longer be prey. I will judge between one sheep and another. I will establish over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will shepherd them. He will tend himself, tend them himself and be their shepherd. Now at this point, by the point in time this is written, David has been dead for hundreds of years. And so the David that God says he's going to appoint is, is the son of David. And so he's saying, there is coming a son of David who will be the one shepherd who cares for the sheep. The one shepherd who, instead of taking advantage of the sheep, he actually protects and provides and meets their needs. So there's one shepherd coming. So in the Gospel of John chapter 9, Jesus heals a man born blind. And the leaders of Israel, very similar to these leaders here in Ezekiel 34, they come to investigate. They start asking the man questions, then they ask his parents questions, they return to the man and ask questions. And basically all their questions are designed to try to get the man to say, say something like, yeah, yeah, like it wasn't a real miracle or, you know, Jesus was doing it by the power of Satan. But basically the man refused to do that. He says, listen, I don't know much. I know this. I've never been able to see. Jesus did something. Now I can see. You guys figure out what happened. Like he won't, 
give in to their, their desire to, to slander Jesus. And so these religious leaders, what they do is they, they reject him from the synagogue, which basically means that like his life is over in the sense of he's not going to find a job. He's not going to be able to find a woman to marry. Like he's cut off. And John 9 ends with Jesus going and finding the man and leading him into the family of God. Beautiful story. In the very next chapter, with that as the background, Jesus says this, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father, I lay down my life for the sheep. But I have other sheep that are not from the sheep pen. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. Then there will be one flock one shepherd. See, Jesus is the one shepherd who stands behind these words of Ecclesiastes. And so what, as we've been reading this, as we've been studying this, as we've been discussing this in our community groups, it's the words of Jesus designed to poke and prod us in the direction that he wants us to go. See, Ecclesiastes is designed us as, to show us as sheep how often we jump into the ditch. Right? We jump into a ditch of, of sexual sin. We jump into a ditch of pursuing money. We jump into a ditch of people-pleasing, of worrying about our reputation, of thinking this relationship will solve anything, of working harder, of, of morality. We just keep jumping in ditch after ditch after ditch. And then our shepherd gives us these words to protect us from our own foolishness, to provoke us. Like the, the truths of Ecclesiastes are wielded by Jesus to lead us into green pastures and beside still waters. Jesus doesn't want you to keep drinking from the stagnant pools of water that will never satisfy you. So let me ask you, how have you responded to the words of Jesus in Ecclesiastes? I, I have a hard time imagining that one of the sheep of Jesus could read through Ecclesiastes, could talk about it, could listen to it, and not feel provoked, not feel the prodding of his spirit saying like, oh, you're going the wrong direction. Ooh, let's, let, let's, let's not go there again. Here's where we need to go. I mean, how are you responding? What changes is Jesus telling you to make because of his words? See, Ecclesiastes, it's here to show us that we are really terrible at figuring out what we need. Like on our own, we will just keep making the wrong decisions. We'll keep choosing another thing that, that can't satisfy us. We'll keep returning to the things that don't satisfy us. Think, well, if I just have more of those, somehow that will satisfy me. And all these chapters are intended to make us stop and yell, help, I need somebody. I need somebody who will lead me. I need someone who will guide me. I need someone who t will tell me where to go. I can't do it. I'm not doing very well on my own. See, we need a good shepherd whose voice will guide us away from the barren pastures of worldliness into the green fields of godliness. And God says, I've given him to you in Jesus. Here's our third need. We need a second Adam. We need a second Adam. So the, there's a final two commands in this book. They're really tied together. I think you can take them really as one command. And they remind us of the initial command that God gave Adam and Eve in the garden. So right when God created the first two humans, he placed them in this garden perfectly prepared for them. He gave them a command. He said, don't eat from a certain tree. But that was the command, but there was a command behind that command, which is this. Trust that I'm God and you're not. Trust that I've provided everything you need 
and everything I say is for your good. Trust me. Worship me. Fear me. And the serpent comes along, and what's his temptation to Adam and Eve? Like, oh, you don't need God. You can figure it out on your own. That tree, that old tree will show you what's good and evil. You don't really need him. And so Adam and Eve, in eating the fruit, what did they do? They didn't fear God and keep his commands. They instead tried to replace God, tried to usurp his throne, put themselves in his place. And so the book of Ecclesiastes ends by telling us, hey, you do what Adam and Eve failed to do. Look at verse 13. So when all has been heard, the conclusion of the matter is this, fear God and keep his commands because this is for all humanity. So let me ask you, what chance do you and I have of obeying this command outside the garden if Adam and Eve couldn't obey this command inside the garden? I mean, do you realize this command is impossible for you? Like just today, fear God and keep his commands perfectly. Good luck with that. Like Adam and Eve, none of us like to be told we're not in charge. Like you, you, you don't want to submit to what God says. I don't want to. And so we have no more chance of obeying this command than they did. And so what hope do we have? We end every service at Redeemer with the Lord's Supper. So we pass out the bread, we pass out the cup, and then we repeat the words of Jesus when we're holding that cup before we drink it, and we say, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. The covenant is a promise. And so what is this new promise that was sealed by the blood of Jesus? Well, here's the promise made God delivered through the prophets was this. God says, for all of human history, I've written some commands down and given them to you. And all you've done is fail. So I gave you, I gave you one command in the garden. You couldn't keep it. I gave you 10 commands on Mount Sinai. You couldn't keep them. I expanded the commands. The more commands there are, the more sin you did. Here's my new promise to you. That through the death, burial, and resurrection of my son through his offering in your place, I'm not only going to forgive all of the sin you've done, I'm going to write my law on your heart. And what it means is that we are given the power to obey what God tells us. And so this covenant sealed by the blood of Jesus, this covenant is necessary if we're going to obey this command at the the end of the book of Ecclesiastes. But we, we should ask, how does Jesus do this? Like, how, how, how is he able to institute this new promise? We're told in Romans 5, verse 18. So then, as through one trespass, there is condemnation for everyone. So also through one righteous act, there is justification leading to life for everyone. So now Jesus is being compared with Adam. For just as through one man's disobedience, Adam, the many were made sinners, so also through the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. This is how Jesus does what Adam fails to do. Like Jesus perfectly obeys God's commands. He fears God. He submits to the authority of the Father. He keeps his commands. And because he does so and still offers his life in our place, then he's able to write the law on our heart, forgive us every time we fail, and empower us to do what Adam and Eve failed to do. This final phrase in verse 13, this is for all humanity, I think should be translated, this is the whole man. This is the whole man. That's it. That's what God's saying. That's it. Everything I want from you, we can sum up in one simple phrase. Fear God and keep his commands. So what should I do when I wake up tomorrow? Fear God, keep his commands. 
What about when you graduate from high school? What, what's next? Got decisions, right? Big decisions. I'm going to simplify them for you. Fear God, keep his commands. What about when the kids grow up and they move out of the house? What, what then? Well, fear God, keep his commands. What about when you're old, your body's failing, you don't have a lot of strength left? Well, this is it. Just fear God and keep his commands. This is the whole of man. This is everything. Whether you're rich or poor, whether you're educated, uneducated, successful or struggling, American or Canadian, young or old, healthy or sick, this is it. This is all God calls you to do. Fear him and keep his commands. Recognize you're not God, that he is, that you're just a sheep. You need a lot of help. You can't do it on your own. Fear him and keep his commands. And friend, the only way that you can do this, the only way you can do this is by calling on Jesus to help you. If you're not a Christian, let me just tell you, you are going to fail in the only way that ultimately matters. You may be a nice person. You may have good morals. You may help those in need. Those are wonderful things. But if you have not entered the new covenant through the blood of Jesus, then you will fail in the way that matters most. And that's why Jesus is inviting you this morning. Jesus is speaking to you through his word. And he's inviting you to come to him and to receive forgiveness of sin. And he'll write his commands on your heart so that you can obey him, so that you can live in obedience to him. You know, because Jesus is the second Adam, not only is he able to do for us what we could not do, this is his promise. He will lead us back into the Garden of Eden. If you've ever read the end of the Bible, the end of the book of Revelation, you'll notice there are all of these images that are taken from the Garden of Eden. And what it's telling us is that God, one day through the work of Jesus, will turn the whole world into a garden where his people will worship and enjoy him forever. So we need a second Adam, finally. Quickly, we need a perfect substitute. The final statement in the book of Ecclesiastes is one of judgment. It doesn't end like a fairy tale. Like the, the book of Ecclesiastes doesn't have us riding off into the sunset while the narrator says, and they all lived happily ever after. Instead, it ends like this. Everything you do, God will judge. Every single word you say, every act you commit, you're going to one day stand before him and you'll receive the consequences of your actions. That's the final verse. Look at verse 14. For God will bring every act to judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. There were a few times in my childhood when we were out somewhere as a family. Maybe we were at a friend's house in the store. Something happened, probably something one of my brothers did. And very indiscriminate way, my dad turned to me and threatened punishment on me, in spite of my innocence, said something like this, when we get home, like you're going to be punished. The, the rare times this happened in our home... Like, we would leave the store, we'd leave the person, the friend's house, we'd get in the car, and I would try my best to fall asleep. I would do everything in my power to go to sleep. Like, I, you know, close my eyes tight, I'd start counting sheep, I'd be doing everything, I need to fall asleep, because I knew this, that if we got home and I was sleeping, my dad had to carry me in, he's not waking me up to punish me. And if he doesn't punish me today, he'll likely forget tomorrow. And so my one chance of escaping the judgment my actions deserved was if I fell asleep. So I tried so hard to fall asleep. It worked with my dad a couple times. Listen, it doesn't work with God. It says in verse 14, every act, every hidden thing will be brought to light. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing I can do to save ourselves. And this is why we need help. 
How can you escape the judgment for the sins you committed? Now, this answer is woven throughout the Bible. The Bible tells us that the good shepherd lays down his sheep, that the shepherd becomes a lamb, and he climbs up on the altar, and he offers himself in our place. So Ecclesiastes is written to make us confront the reality of our need for divine intervention. We read it all, and we're supposed to ask, what am I going to do about death? What am I going to do about my sin? What am I going to do about judgment? It's leaving us to cry, help. God, I need someone. See, and that's when we do that, that's when we turn in faith to Jesus. We give our lives to him completely. When we reach the end of our efforts and we realize we have fallen infinitely short, that's when we understand the beauty and wonder of the grace of God in sending his son to rescue us from our sin. A week ago, my dishwasher broke. I've been trying to fix it. So my dad and I, we, we disconnected the, some cords and hoses, and we pulled it out, we flipped it on the air back, and we got to the part we thought was causing the problem. We took it off, seemed to be all gunked up, cleaned it out, put it back together, put it in place, tried it. It was leaking. bad part about that was it wasn't leaking before. <laughs> so we took it all, did everything in reverse, did it again. Oh, we don't, okay, I think we got it seated correctly this time. Do it again, press the button. It's leaking. Three times we did this. Each time, sure. Oh, this time, I think we got it. Each time, still leaking. Listen, I researched the problem on Google. I watched multiple YouTube videos about fixing dishwashers. I looked at diagrams. I even sent an email to like a parts rep asking a question. My dishwasher's still not working. There's a load of dirty dishes ready for it. Life outside the Garden of Eden is a lot like my dishwasher. Do you want to know when the dishwasher broke? Thanksgiving morning. I mean, what worse day for your dishwasher to stop working? The dishwasher's three years old. Shouldn't have broken. We don't abuse our dishwasher. We didn't do something to our dishwasher to, to cause it to break. It just broke. It just stopped working one day. It's working. Next day, it's not working. I've tried every possible solution to fix it on my own. Like the teacher, I've researched and I've experimented and nothing is fixed what's broken. I'll keep trying. Maybe I'm successful. I guarantee it won't be long until it breaks again. Does that ever sound like your life? Everything's going well. <laughs> it's just such a good season and then something breaks. Right? There's a crisis at work. There's a recession in the economy. There's a death in the family, an illness, a relapse, a foolish decision. Are you going to try to fix it on your own? I mean, has that ever worked for you? I'm probably going to give up on trying to fix my dishwasher. I've got one more thing I'm going to try. And when that fails, I'm finally going to humble myself enough to call someone who knows how to fix it. I'm going to admit my inability and ask for help. That's the point of Ecclesiastes. All your attempts to fix your life are like a kid trying to catch the wind in a peanut butter jar or a pastor trying to fix his own dishwasher. And so what can you do? You can ignore it. It's not going to change anything, but maybe you'll feel better for a little bit. You can try other things, but the whole point is like, 
I tried them all. They don't work. Or you can call on Jesus. You're foolish. He's wisdom. You're helpless. He's a good shepherd. You're weak. He's the second Adam. You're sinful. He is off with himself in your place. Listen, I've read the dishwasher manual. I've looked at the schematics, and they have done me no good. There's one thing I need. I need a phone number. And I need enough wisdom and humility to call it. Friend, have you ever called on Jesus to save you? Brothers and sisters, are you trying to go through day after day, hour after hour, situation after situation without calling on Jesus? Instead of living in frustration because of our failure to navigate this broken world, let's turn to Jesus in faith. Will you pray with me? Father, we need your help. We need humility to call upon you. So much of our problems, so many of them can be traced to our pride that keeps us from admitting our problems, admitting our struggles, and our unwillingness to ask for help. Lord, I pray right now, I'm certain there are some sitting here that sit in here week after week, and they, they hear the truth about Jesus, they see it in the lives of those around them, but in stubborn pride refuse to call upon you for help. And I pray that today would be the day where you open their eyes to see the glory of Jesus the hope that comes from him, the helplessness without him, and that today would be the day where they receive faith and grace and begin to walk with Jesus. They hear his, the voice of the good shepherd for the very first time. Lord, I pray that you help us each day to turn from our foolishness, listen to our shepherd's voice, to walk in wisdom, to walk with Jesus. Lord, this is it. This is all we're called to do is to fear you and keep your commands, to walk in relationship with you, to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so, Father, give us the grace to pursue this with every fiber of our being. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Community Church in Fuquay, Verena, North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more sermons, we invite you to visit us online at RedeemerNC.org.